The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I am delighted to have as our guest, Mr. Gary Schweitzer, who is the publisher of a terrific website called healthnewsreview.org, where he reviews the latest medical studies with a team of more than two dozen medical professionals. I guess if I were to put Gary in a nutshell, I'd have to say he is a one formidable health media watchdog. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. I, join you. I am thrilled that you're here. I've heard you speak uh, several times at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting, and I've always been impressed because I'll make a confession here to our listeners. I have a master's degree in human nutrition, and I have a really hard time interpreting scientific studies sometimes. They're difficult. It's hard to find the conflict of interest that may be there. And I really appreciate your website, not only for the review of of news stories, which are also searchable, over 1,500 news stories searchable. But I also appreciate the clues that you give me about how to interpret stories. So I started out by asking you before the interview, and I want to ask you again, what kinds of news stories in the health media realm disturb you the most? Yeah, that's actually pretty easy, you know, because when you're looking at these things every day now for five years and more than 1,500 stories, as we've done uh, themes, recurring themes, trends jump out at you, and it is undeniable in my mind that there are stories about screening tests, mostly for cancer, but not all, that almost always exaggerate benefits, minimize or completely ignore harms, and almost lead people to believe that we must all be on the search for weapons of mass destruction inside all of us, and that if you haven't found something wrong with you, it's your fault that you just haven't looked hard enough. Hmm. And, you know, we're working, trying to to make uh, our impact in flip-flopping this message that, indeed, almost a complete reversal of this message is equally true and perhaps more helpful to consumers, and that is all screening tests cause harm. Some may do some good along the way. If we can't come to grips, Melinda, with screening test issues, if we don't do a better job in communicating these issues, I don't think we stand a chance of doing a better job on downstream treatment issues because we can't even get these more preliminary upstream issues right and and this is this is huge it, it's huge from an accuracy standpoint from a balance standpoint from a health policy uh, standpoint we have unsustainable health care costs in this country right now if we were to start screening every man for prostate cancer over the age of 40 as some would say if 
we were to start screening every smoker with lung CT scans, as some advocates would say that we should, if we should start screening everybody of every age for cholesterol, which is going to lead to more people on uh, statins, and in fact in the news this week is, is word of one drug company trying to have their statin given over-the-counter status, you can really start to see where if we have unsustainable costs in this country already, we're going to break the bank. If we don't start to communicate that this isn't just a walk through the park, that indeed there is a trade-off of, yes, potential benefits, but yes, some very real potential harms that come. The more you look, the harder you you look for disease and, and the more you apply screening tests outside the boundaries of evidence. So that's an easy one for me to answer. And that just covers the screening problems that are reported in the news. One of the things on my top ten list is the conflict of interest issues. And, of course, I really focus more on food and health and agriculture, but for, I'll give you a good example of, say, the environmental impact studies that are going to be required before we plant, say, a genetically modified crop and the allowance of the company that makes the product being allowed to perform those environmental impact statement studies. So I see probably a, a parallel there with the conflict of interest with pharmaceutical companies and health organizations, and I'm assuming that you see that as well. Yeah, You know, I, I just think that we've done the public, uh, the news-consuming public, uh, a disservice in not doing a better job in explaining that in healthcare and in the healthcare industry there are conflicts of interest around every corner. Now I, I'm not painting a picture of boogeymen here, uh, and I'm actually not even suggesting that all financial conflicts of interest are inherently bad. However, we're not having an informed, intelligent public discussion about some of the conflicts that are disclosed and what that means and those that aren't and what impact that may have on the integrity of the science. Nobody wants to pay more taxes in this country, and it is a fact that we are, for progress in research, becoming more reliant in this country on um, industry-supported uh, research. Right. What we're not doing is fostering a, a better more informed, intelligent discussion about what does that mean to the integrity of the research? Right. What are we comfortable with? Just uh, this week, as a matter of fact, as we talk, the uh, FDA revealed that it is considering loosening its conflict of interest uh, regulations for those who serve on very important FDA uh, advisory committees. And one of their reasons is that uh, they can't, they say they can't find any non-conflicted experts anymore to serve on, on these committees. Well, you know what? Even as uh, a little journalistic uh, effort, our site, healthnewsreview.org, uh, has a list that has been on the website for more than three years of more than 100 people who swear to us that they do not have financial uh, conflicts of interest, and that they're willing to help journalists uh, to give uh, unbiased and balanced uh, perspectives on 
issues that are in the news. So, uh, you know, I am one, and I'm, I'm joined by many others who are concerned about uh, a loosening in uh, the regulations for who serves on these uh, committees. And again, I'll just drop back in general and say that I don't think we've done a very good job of educating the American public about where these conflicts exist, where they have been disclosed, and what that means and what it may not mean, and where it hasn't been disclosed and why we ought to care. Well, you served on the faculty in the School of Journalism at the University of Minnesota. And I wonder, in your experience there at least, were student journalists taught to carefully look at conflict of interest and fold that into their stories? Well, I think that that's an area of potential improvement in many journalism school curricula. One of the things that I felt best about was in my uh, last two years teaching at Minnesota, I convinced the department to not only continue to teach in a health journalism graduate program, a master's level program, but I wanted to start earlier and introduce these concepts to uh, seniors in uh, at the undergrad level. And uh, after asking for a number of years, I finally got permission. And I'll tell you, in retrospect, I probably have more satisfaction from what I think I was able to accomplish uh, as a teacher at that undergrad level with uh, what was probably 20 to 32 students over two terms um, in my last two years. Even if those people don't end up becoming full-time healthcare reporting specialists, which I don't think any of them are at this point, mm. I can't tell you how many of these generalists who've now graduated and, and gone on to various jobs in the industry report back to me saying, I may not be covering this stuff full-time, but I can't tell you, Gary, how many times what you taught us has come up in the newsroom or in my reading of the news. Well, this is what I hoped for, mm-hmm. that if you can start to to introduce this, uh, even at the undergrad level, some of these concepts, like the conflict of interest that you're honing in on here, but also how to evaluate the evidence, how, how to understand um, absolute versus relative risk, how mm-hmm. to understand concepts like uh, the number needed to treat, the number needed to screen, the hierarchy of evidence, that a study is not a study is not a study, why it's important to uh, cover costs when you're discussing new interventions uh, in, in the healthcare marketplace. If you can start to introduce this uh, earlier, uh, I have no doubt that you will change minds, you will change lives. I know that students who had to put up with me for 14 weeks in a semester will never be the same, and I, and I think it's for the good. So I think you raise a really important point. If we want to see an improvement in the professional journalism some of these specialty areas like healthcare journalism need a lot more attention at the undergrad level as well. Well, I love your website and I love the questions that you've listed, the criteria for what consumers need to know when they are reviewing health stories. And we should probably touch on some of these because I think they people I think always need to be thinking of these. So, what is the total cost? not only the cost of the screening, perhaps, the cost of the treatment, the cost of the benefits versus the risks. How often do you see cost addressed comprehensively in news stories? 
uh, about 30% of the time. And, and remember now, this is a data-driven answer I'm giving you. This isn't off the cuff. So after 1,500-some stories, now approaching 1,600 in five years, and it isn't just me. Uh, there are almost always three reviewers on uh, every story, and they represent other freelance journalists and then a bunch of top folks from uh, academic medical centers across the country at uh, leading institutions. And 70% of the stories failed to adequately address costs. 70% of them failed to adequately describe the scope of the potential benefit and the scope of the potential harm. Well, Melinda, when you take those three things, that that means in our minds that 70% of the time we're giving the American public a kid-in-the-candy-store view of U.S. healthcare, where we're making 70% of the things look terrific, risk-free, and without a price tag. And it very much concerns me, not only what kind of an informed healthcare consumer population are we not fostering with that kind of news coverage, what kind of an electorate are we failing to educate? Because these are the people who are going into the voting booth alongside of us and who don't understand the value of comparative effectiveness research and who perhaps at the first sign of such research raising questions about the evidence to support a given intervention may be inclined, again, perhaps driven by messages they hear from vested interests, to rise up and say, aha, you're trying to take something away from us that's rationing. You know, we are irrational in this country in the the spending that we allocate to health care without demanding a better return on investment. We lead the world in spending on health care, and we don't have the return on investment to show for it. You may think we have the best health care system in the world, and I guess that if you are in dire straits, in emergency straits, we might be. But while we spend 17% of the gross domestic product on health care, we leave 17% of the population uninsured. And we come in 37th in the world in infant mortality. If we came in 37th in the world in the Olympic medals race, there'd be rioting in the streets. So these are these are huge consumer issues, and I'm really glad you framed that the way that, that you did, and this is the way we, we frame it on our website. So this is not just about improving journalism. You know, improving journalism is not my end game here. Mm-hmm. We knew all along that if journalists didn't pay attention to us, although most of them do, that if they ignored us, and only a few of them do, I think, that even if that happened, we really cared about improving the, the quality and the flow of information to consumers. And it's really my task to make sure that this effort, this project, these messages don't just stop with journalists, but that this project is really viewed as a direct-to-consumer helpful site, which I think it clearly is is becoming. We now are averaging more than 5,000 unique visitors to the site every weekday. Well, there aren't that many healthcare journalists in this country, and we know we're getting a lot of traction with a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life who are looking for independent, expert, balanced, 
information to help them navigate this confusing non-system that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Gary Schweitzer. He is the publisher of the website healthnewsreview.org. And I have to say that I, I didn't give you uh, the credit you deserved in my earlier introduction. You've had more than 30 years' experience in radio, TV, interactive multimedia. You've taught at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Uh, there is no doubt that you have national, international respect from your peers. And I agree with you that this is more than a journalism issue. This is this really calls to task the issue of teaching people how to think critically, whether we're reading about health news or whether we're reading about environmental news or whether we're reading about who should we vote for for the next elected official. It's critical thinking, and the questions that you've identified can be applied across many boards. Let's go to the next topic that you look at here, and it's how often do benefits occur, how often do harms occur. I can tell you from my own experience that in in reading news articles, rarely do I ever see the issue of harm addressed. How often do you see a balanced reporting on that? Yeah, well, that same 70% statistic applies to uh, to benefits and harms. That you know, it, it's it, it's not accidental that only three out of ten stories, or seven out of ten stories, don't adequately address costs, harms, and benefits. So when I say that we tend to exaggerate benefits and minimize harms, that's backed up by now five years' experience with 1,500 stories and and, uh, different people uh, looking at these stories. Now, this has to have an impact on the healthcare cost picture in this country. It, It as I view it, the communication of these issues alone, much less the delivery of these interventions in healthcare, it's the communication of these issues alone that is a major health policy issue because we are feeding a pill for every ill mentality in this country. We are feeding the worried well. We are, as I said before, feeding the mentality that we all must be on the search for weapons of mass destruction inside all of us. We feed the mentality regularly that we all need to be screened for everything. Well, there are harms in that approach. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't want to hear that, uh, you're, you're entitled to ignore it. But we think that you're really not making informed decisions if you aren't given the complete breakdown of what the benefits are and what the harms are for the whole panoply of things in the medical or healthcare arsenal. Well, so, you know, treatments, tests, products, procedures, dietary approaches. We all are inclined to be sold a bill of goods if we're gullible and not willing to learn how to scrutinize the evidence. It doesn't take a PhD to be able to do this. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that when we do see a harm reported, it's rarely connected with a financial component. The full cost accounting is what I like to say. So I think it's a very good point and one that we should perhaps demand of, of our reporters. Alternative options, you touched on that. How often do you see alternatives 
reported. So, for example, yeah, you've got these statin drugs, but oh, by the way, did you know that diet and exercise might be just as effective as the pill? Yeah, and that's a prime example, just the way you framed that. And only about half the time do stories uh, adequately address the alternatives. And you can understand why this is. Mm -hmm. I mean, news coverage is supposed to be about the new. Mm -hmm. But it's our expectation that in your discussion about the new, you will wrap it into the context of what's already out there, what's already proven and established with a much more, by definition, with a much more proven track record than the new could possibly have. If you fail to do that, then, again, you are just imprinting on people that in healthcare. Newer is always better. More is always better. Well, no, it isn't. We have increasing evidence in this uh, country that more is not always better in healthcare. More healthcare isn't always better. Newer healthcare isn't always better. So this is a crucial issue, and you put this just now in the context of a drug approach versus a uh, lifestyle approach, and. You know, I think that drives a lot of public health people up the wall that there is that uh, bias in a lot of our messages. You know, we've only been talking about news coverage here, but how many you think about the impact of advertising and billboards and websites and uh, sometimes um, conflicted patient advocacy groups that, that receive their funding from industry and on and on and on, there's a tsunami of conflicted messages that wash over the American public every day with medical media messages. And we need to help people sort through and to evaluate the evidence. One of the issues that you mentioned earlier in our discussion was relative versus absolute risk. Honestly, I think this is probably one of the most complicated issues for consumers to address. How do you weigh the evidence? And then you start getting into math. And most of us aren't, you know, if we are reading beyond the headline and we get to the meat of the story and then there's numbers involved, it starts to get a little more complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I'm I'm not a career academic. I came up through the ranks as a journalist. So almost by definition, I'm math phobic. Hey, if I can do this, anybody can. And I'll give you a tip here in a minute. Anytime you hear an effect size, a risk reduction, let's say, of 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, you should be asking yourself, 50 percent of what? Because what that is, is what we refer to as a relative risk reduction. I'll give you an example. When Merck marketed its drug for osteoporosis, it advertised that it would result in a 50% reduction in the risk of hip fracture. Well, that wasn't inaccurate, but as Paul Harvey used to say on the radio, now you hear, need to hear the rest of the story. Right. 50%, what that re- actually was, in terms that were much more meaningful to people, the absolute risk, was a reduction from 2 in a 100 hip fractures two out of 100 in an untreated group to one in 100 in a treated group. A reduction from two to one is indeed 
a 50% risk reduction. But if you really want to convey that to people, it is a 1% absolute risk reduction change from 2 in 100 to 1 in 100. If you work for a drug company or you work for an ad agency that represents a drug company, I could understand why you'd want to use the relative risk reduction figure. But if you want to help people understand the true scope of benefit, we think you need to use the absolute risk reduction figures as well. Look at it this way. It's like having a 50% off coupon at your local department store, but you don't know if that 50% off coupon can be applied to the purchase of a Lexus or a yeah. lollipop. Yeah. Only by knowing what that coupon can be applied for, 50% of what, do you get the absolute figure which is really meaningful to you as a consumer. So I, I love that coupon analogy. I think it's extremely applicable. I, I, it's perfect. Okay, we've got four minutes left, and I want to leave you with an opportunity to touch on any of the criteria that, that you especially want to talk about or anything else in the news that you want listeners to know. Well, you know, one of the criteria which uh, throws people off when they haven't heard this term is, uh, did the story avoid disease-mongering? Yes. And we have a lot of disease-mongering. What that means is exaggerating the prevalence or the seriousness of a condition. So, I mean, come on, is toenail fungus really a serious national health threat? You might think so if you watch a lot of television and see the little green monster in the TV ads for the, the drug for uh, toenail fungus is baldness, is dandruff, is aging in and of itself a disease. There's so much disease mongering on women's health issues that you might think that it is an illness to be a woman in America these days. And interestingly, a lot of it ends up having a uh, an antidepressant uh, as the uh, solution. So we look for this in news stories. Uh, and, and another aspect of this is when a news story treats a risk factor for a disease as if it were a disease itself. Mm-hmm. So high blood cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease, but does not in and of itself immediately identify whether you're going to die of a heart attack or not. And it's really important that we not exaggerate or medicalize conditions because, again, we are feeding the worried well. And you know, I, I worry not only about the integrity of the information that we're conveying, but as I said, I think these really translate into serious health policy issues and we're never going to affect meaningful Healthcare reform in this country. If we don't start communicating better about these issues, mm-hmm. do you recommend uh, encouraging people to look beyond the headline too? I think headlines get us in trouble. Yep, they do. They well, you know, as an ending point here, I would just drive home to your listeners that if you haven't come to healthnewsreview.org, please do and check out our ten criteria that are on the upper right hand corner of the homepage. I think you'd find them helpful as you hear news, as you hear advertising, even in your discussions with your doctor. This is a pretty good starting point for getting the information that that we think you need about healthcare and medical interventions. 
Well, Gary, I want to thank you so much for your time today. We've been speaking with Mr. Gary Schweitzer. He is the publisher of the excellent website, healthnewsreview.org. He has a wonderful blog. He's a seasoned journalist, and as I like to say, a formidable health media watchdog. I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for your time. Please be sure, listeners, to go to healthnewsreview.org, that's all one word, and learn so much more than we had time to touch on today. Thank you, Gary. You're welcome.